0: You know to this day i was so ashamed and it's contrary to everything i thought i was
1: welcome to criminalized in this podcast i examine what it means to be deemed criminal in america i'm sarika Ram. in this episode i'm going to be discussing sexual abuse and rape if these topics are upsetting or triggering to you Please prepare yourself before listening further, or skip ahead to the next episode. This episode is about Bill Canavan and his life before and after becoming a registered sex offender. Bill's childhood looked like that of a lot of young boys growing up in white middle-class families in the 1950s.
0: It was a middle-class family. My father worked as a furniture salesman. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. I had one older sister, one younger sister. Um, I went to parochial school for 10 years and then I started having difficulty in schools and I never graduated from any high school. Mm. I got a GED later on in life in prison in 1971.
1: What were the kind of difficulties that you experienced while in school?
0: Rebellion against authority, I guess, was probably the best answer. But, you know, having the benefit of hindsight and a lot of introspection, I now know that my change from being the head altar boy in the parish and a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout and, you know, a model little boy, pretty good athlete, uh, happened from, as a result of sexual abuse. Uh, I was sexually abused by a family friend and stuffed it, didn't know what to do with it, was confused, ashamed, And if I were to look back on a bar graph at my life and how it was going and how it went thereafter, it's very clear to me that that was the problem. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so what was the the experience of being sexually abused by a family friend, processing that at that age and in that context? What was going through your head? How did it affect the way you experienced your day-to-day life and your relationships?
0: Well, you keep it a secret, for sure, and you don't tell anybody. Uh, it was a man, by the way, hmm. or older older-than-me person, put it that way. He was actually a teenager. Hmm. It was very hard, um, one, because I liked girls, to be honest with you, at that age, and, and it was just very weird. Um, and I was ashamed and guilty and didn't know what to do, felt trapped. And you know, now that I've wasted a large part of my life trying to figure all that out, I feel bad in a way that that I wasn't able to process that. But I mean, I, I give my I forgive myself for that. You're young. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was twelve years old, um, but if if society had had more knowledge about sex offenses then, maybe I wouldn't have ended up spending more than three decades in prison. Mm. And I like to think that I could have accomplished a lot more.
1: And so what was your trajectory after school? What happened?
0: Crime, crime, and more crime. Mm. And the interesting thing about my criminal history, I guess, is that I actually committed crime, mm. and it wasn't until I was 29 that I got arrested for my first sex offense, and this was after I got married mm. to the woman of my dreams. Um, it's unfortunate that you know I was in the wrong place in life then, but, um, but I just committed every kind of crime you could imagine, short of murder, I guess. <laughs> And honestly, I liked it. Um, there's an adrenaline rush to committing crime, I guess. Uh, and I went everything from stealing cars to cashing checks to breaking an entrance to armed robbery while masked. Um, and it was just a progression or a lifestyle, whatever you want to call it. I had certainly no self-respect at that time, but I had no respect for others. No respect for boundaries. If I want I'm taking it. Uh, and I look back at that now. It's so different than who I am today. Uh, it it gives me confidence in a way when I speak to people and say, now, you know, so-and-so did this or whatever. But people change. Some people need more help than others to change. And I've seen people that just said, I'm done. I mean, that, they're generally much older. Mm. But I'm done. I want to die free.
1: And so I kind of tell me a little bit more about the events that led up to your first sex offense. What was happening in your life?
0: I worked for a major computer company. I worked in a what was called technical OEM, technical original equipment manufacturer. And we had clients who would buy the computers and then government regulations said they had to add value to it in whatever their field was. And I was honestly, in a way over my head. But I really loved the job, I gotta tell you. And I have no explanation whatsoever, how maybe it was the pressure, the stress, and marriage, um, all at once, triggered something. Mm.
1: And so what happened?
0: Well, my first series of sex offenses were essentially, the result of cruising if you will where you go around looking for a victim and I found isolated women um, on country roads in a conservation area Um, and they were essentially me exposing myself and in two of the cases um, getting oral gratification
1: and so, what do you think triggered you to commit these acts?
0: You know, to this day, I was so ashamed, and it's contrary to everything I thought I was. And the only explanation I can give is it was triggered by stress, but. You know, there was a lot more to it. I mean, I grew up in an era where where women were objectified, and, you know, it's so different in the world today. Um, I felt entitled. I, you know, I, I really don't know, even to this day. And honestly, I don't spend a lot of time on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I like who I become, mm-hmm. and I can only build on that. And I feel so sorry for my victims. Mm -hmm. But there's nothing I can do at this point to change what happened Mm -hmm. and I dare say make them feel any better. Mm -hmm. I could only hope they got counseling and went out to have productive lives and it didn't scar them too much. Mm -hmm. But only they have the right to... A victim is the only person that has the right to explain how traumatized they were.
1: How do you think your past growing up Having been sexually abused by an adult perhaps affected um, the way in which you responded to stress. Do you think there's any correlation there?
0: Well, that's a wonderful question. Perhaps I justified what I did by saying, well, I survived it. Um, I don't know.
1: Before we delve further into Bill's story, in the experiences of people who commit sex offenses, I wanted to take the time to acknowledge the difficulty of this subject. Sexual violence causes deep, often irreparable harm. About 20% of women and 2% of men will experience rape. Another 44% of women and 26% of men will experience another form of sexual violence in their lifetime. Recently, many survivors, but still not nearly all, have seen meaningful action taken against their abusers in court. The legal system promises justice to survivors of sexual violence, that sanctions like incarceration and sex offender registries will even the scale, prevent future sexual violence, and increase public safety. In this episode, I focus on the justice system's failure to follow through on this promise, all while causing unnecessary harm to those who commit sex offenses. In doing that, I show a lot of compassion to Bill, and I understand that may be hard to hear, but it's a perspective we don't hear a lot, and that's what Criminalized is all about, listening to stories from people who've been historically silenced. That said, this is just one perspective. It's equally, if not more important, to hear from survivors of sexual violence about their experiences the justice system. So I hope you'll take this episode for what it is, just one piece of a complicated issue. Bill was sentenced to a maximum security prison, which was called MCI Walpole at the time, for 16 to 18 years on one count of rape and one count of assault with the intent to rape. I asked him about his experience on the inside, given the stigma that the sex offender label carries in prison.
0: Well, I was fortunate in one way. When I went to Walpole for a sex offense, I had already done a lot of time for normal crimes, if you will, and everybody knew me. So I had a level of acceptance. Because when I went to Walpole, they asked me if I wanted protective custody immediately. Mm -hmm. I said, no, I don't want protective custody. You know, I'm not going to do that. Um, So I didn't have the rough road that a lot of sex offenders... Have when they go into prison, I mean, I had moments uh, and like I say, at that time, it was a very violent prison. but I always managed to uh have enough savvy, I think to see a dangerous situation before I got myself in it and I don't know, I was lucky, i guess, but i I did well in in a prison environment. Uh, I did well in Law Secure. I learned to be a furniture maker. Mm. I made furniture for custom-made furniture, hardwood furniture, for nine years. Uh, I acquired, I don't know, $30,000 worth of tools, and that's way back when, mm. so that was a lot of tools. D- during much of the time that I was incarcerated, I learned the law. Mm. Um, there's a very big publisher, and I assume they still are one of the biggest publishers in at least in this country, was Publishing. And they had, at the time, a jailhouse lawyer's course kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I had accumulated some money in my savings account, so I I bought all these books. And I I read and I read and I read and I read. And I got to the point where the gibberish became something I could understand. And I liked it. Mm -hmm. You know, I knew how to type. I had a lot of things going for me. So I was a prison law clerk. For years and years and years. And I helped everybody. Never charged anybody anything. Just helped them. And so
1: tell me a little bit more about your marriage and how it was affected by this.
0: Well, my wife was stoic. She stood by me all the way. The company stood by me. They couldn't believe it. And she visited me for eight years. And then she was, her maternity biological clock was ticking. We didn't have any children at that point. And she wanted to have a baby and she met someone at a class reunion and she came to visit me and told me the story. And, you know, I wished her luck. I said, you know, when you said for better or for worse, this was never in your imagination. But she came to visit all the time in snowstorms I was in a violent prison for the first three years, Walpole, which is now Cedar Junction. Uh, I ran the canteen there, which was sometimes good, sometimes not so good. Uh, So, I know she went to counseling. I know she drank for a while. She had problems with alcohol. But we never had the opportunity to process everything. Never. And she toughed it out. And she's married, living somewhere out near California. We agreed to not have any more contact. And I think I have the skills now. If I chose to, I could find her. But I respect my promise.
1: Bill lost everything when he went away. But his experience on the inside was better than most especially considering his record as a sex offender. There's a perverse pecking order in prison, and sex offenders are at the bottom of the ladder. Most sex offenders are vulnerable to verbal, physical, and sexual abuse on the inside. But Bill had built a good reputation. He was able to put his head down and develop a repertoire of transferable skills. But the prison system did not address the underlying problems that led to his sex offenses. Bill was never required to go to treatment, attend stress management courses, or otherwise meaningfully reflect on his transgressions. What prison primarily does is isolate people from the community. And there's something to be said about that. Many sex offenders are prone to re-offense and they need to be stopped. Survivors of sexual violence also need to know they're not at risk of being hurt again. But about 95% of sex offenders return home. And our current system leaves most people unequipped to tackle the challenges that will come their way when they do. That's why, when Bill was first released from prison in 1997, he found himself in the same place he had been 17 years earlier. He returned to cruising and sexually assaulting lone women. This time, he was sentenced to two and a half to three years for open and gross lewdness and lascivious behavior. Six years later, in 2006, Bill reoffended again and was sentenced to prison for four to five years. Looking back on that, do you have any idea why, um, or uh, upon reflection, why you feel you reoffended?
0: I just didn't get it. Um, and then the more you understand yourself, the more you have empathy for victims. I mean, I, there's no way to express. how bad I feel for what I did to my victims. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't minimize anything, You know, and there's certainly far worse sex crimes than I committed, but that's not it. It's not it at all, it's the violation. And they're all the same for me, they really are. Um, nobody has a right to do that to another human being, at any level, I don't care if it's just simple touching or, or a violent rape. No one has a right to do that. So I didn't get it. That's just, I mean, I know that's hard to imagine that someone doesn't get it. I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do now. Believe me, I do. And I preach it all the time. Uh, I find myself, when I communicate with people that are still incarcerated, encouraging them to go to treatment,
2: mm-hmm.
0: something I never did. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can gain insight. You can gain empathy, you can gain understanding, and you can gain tools that help you from getting in a place where you might Mm re-offend. The idea is to stop the train, you know, before it goes too far down the track.
1: Bill's track record of repeatedly sexually assaulting women landed him in the Massachusetts Treatment Center, where sex offenders go after they've been civilly committed. For people who've committed sex offenses, civil commitment is when the county petitions to have them detained in a treatment facility to prevent future sex crimes. In Massachusetts, the way the process goes is people who've completed their sentence for a sex offense are examined by a number of doctors who determine whether or not there's probable cause that the individual will reoffend. If a majority of the examiners feel that there's reason to believe a person continues to pose a threat to their community, There's a trial, where a jury decides how long a person should be committed for. People can be detained in civil commitment anywhere from one day to life.
0: Uh, I was committed as a sexually dangerous person September 24th of 2010. Uh, I was released after a trial. July 31st, 2012. So I wasn't in that long. I didn't do any treatment when I was there. Um, and, And I felt like it was the right choice for me. Treatment at the Mass Treatment Center is not confidential. So anything you say in group is furnished to the department legal team, and it can be used against you. On a rare occasion, it's used in your favor, too. But as you probably know, you know, you can't have a trial by surprise. So if the government's going to use evidence against you, they got to furnish to your defense.
1: Um, and so you think the, the reoffending is essentially what, uh, what triggered the civil commitment process for you?
0: Without question. Mm-hmm. And public safety. Mm. I mean, they took a look at my record and said, look at this guy. Did it in 1980. He did it in 1997. We're not letting him out again. Yeah. I mean, I get it. Yeah. And I had overturned a forty to fifty-year sentence, which would have this. I would have been ninety-seven when I got out, and nobody lives to be ninety-seven in prison. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you think that that was the right thing to do for them to have you civilly committed?
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. I, uh, because even at that point, I hadn't found myself. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not gonna lie to you. I, I, I can't say with any kind of certainty that I, if I had gotten out, I would have reoffended. no. But I can say that, honestly, that I had not found myself as a man.
1: Even though Bill respects the court's decision to civilly commit him, there is no denying that the civil commitment process opposes one of the most sacred principles in the American criminal legal system, the presumption of innocence which says that a defendant is innocent until proven guilty. People who are civilly committed have, yes, been deemed guilty in a court of law, but for a crime they've already served out a sentence for. People in civil commitment are detained on the basis of a crime they might commit. On top of that, many people in civil commitment never receive the treatment they need because of a phenomenon known as the treatment paradox. For people who've committed a sex offense, It's important that they are in a safe space where they can unpack their sexual thoughts and past mistakes but therapy sessions at the state treatment center aren't safe many people who are civilly committed like bill decide to forego treatment because therapy sessions aren't confidential meaning that anything they say in treatment can be used against them in court bill spent 32 years in prison but his punishment is far from over what was your own experience attempting to acquire housing and a job after being released?
0: In a word, it was horrible. Uh, I was homeless for 13 months. Oh, wow. um, and, you know, I didn't have any family. But I had some friends, some mentors. Uh, while I was homeless, I earned a power certificate. From Boston University <laughs> and their online program with a 3.7 GPA, I might add, <laughs> uh, which haunts me because I wanted a 4.0. It's a long <laughs> story. I'm not going to get into that now. I'll tell you later. And on the same day, one miraculous day, I got my paralegal certificate in the mail at St. Francis House. I got housing and a job offer. within 45 minutes.
1: Wow. And your experience being homeless, how did that affect you on a personal level and also potentially affect your vulnerability to recidivism?
0: I can assure you I never want to be homeless again. Being homeless is tough duty. Um, You know, it's it's a constant personal struggle to keep telling yourself it's going to get better. And when you're walking down Tremont Street and it's freezing rain and you're cold and you have no money to go into a a store to get warm and you got a backpack on and they're going to chase you out if you go in there. Um, I mean, now that they've got some places where people can go, more so than when I was homeless. You could always go to St. Francis House. that has been there as long as I was homeless. But it's a struggle, and, and I, I found that getting focused on something that I thought would change my lot um, was what, what pulled me through it, and helping others. I mean, all the time, when I was homeless, Other guys were getting out of the treatment center. And I would sort of guide them on what I had already learned. And that's what mushroomed into the Boston Release Network. I I like to tell you it was an act of brilliance on my part. (laughs) And it wasn't. It was was an accident. It was necessity. And they collided.
1: Bill has come a long way since his days in the streets. He's now the founder and executive director of Boston Release Network. A nonprofit organization that provides social services to people who've committed sex offenses and are re entering into society. But getting to this point required lots of patience and determination. Former sex offenders face the same barriers that many formerly incarcerated people experience, but amplified tenfold. Employers might be open to hiring someone who's been arrested for dealing drugs or robbing a liquor store, but never for committing a sex offense. It's also really difficult for people who've committed sex offenses to secure housing. Many sex offenders are ineligible for public housing, and most face residency restrictions, meaning they aren't allowed to live within a certain distance of schools, daycares, parks, and playgrounds. In Massachusetts, people who've committed sex offenses are actually relatively fortunate because there aren't residency restrictions here. But that doesn't mean landlords are going to be any more likely to rent to people who've got sex offenses on their record. This has led to significant rates of homelessness among former sex offenders. On top of this, many sex offenders are subject to sex offender registration and community notification laws. How does the sex offender registration process go?
0: I'll have a case coming out again. I'll have another hearing. Uh I've had more hearings than anyone I know. But it works. First of all, it's governed by statute and a CMR. CMR stands for Court of Mass Regulation. Um, And there's, a, I think it's 27-point criteria that the Sex Offender Registry Board uses, many of which are subjective, by the way, um, to evaluate someone's risk to reoffend based upon your history and a host of other things. Um, If you're homeless, you must register every 30 days. If you have housing, you register once a year. Uh, The registration process involves getting your fingerprints digitally taken and a digital photograph. If you are a level three, depending upon what community you live in, they have what's called active dissemination. So they post your picture, in libraries or near schools or whatever they could go to your neighbors and give your picture out at one time i had to deal with that uh, but i've been a level two for quite some time so that doesn't happen anymore once you become a level two the active d- dissemination goes away but you're still on the internet and then if you become a level one you're off the internet and there is no active dissemination and i, I you know i i don't know if someone can go and request information for a level one i'm Hopefully I'll find that out when I become one, but I don't know. Mm. But uh, it, for me, I you know, where I live, well, there's four sex offenders who live in the same building. Mm. Um, there's five apartments and a big house. And whenever anyone's had any issue, I say, come on down and have a coffee or a beer or we'll talk. Mm. Um, and I really haven't had any problems mm. with my immediate neighbors, I've always been helpful. If they get stuck out in the in the parking lot when it's snowing, I'm out there pushing. Yeah. And, you know, they don't buy anything you say. Uh, but over time, they see how you act and your behavior, and it, it becomes a non-issue.
1: And so do people find out you're on the registry?
0: <sighs> I was off the registry for quite some time because of uh, an appeal of my initial classification that we won, and I got on dating sites. So I had a fair amount of dates, I was surprised. And, you know, you get to a point where things move along in a blossoming friendship, if you will, and then I'm obligated to tell them my history. And sometimes before we got to that point, They'd already looked me up on the registry, and that was that. They'd call me, and don't ever bother me, go whatever. Uh, but it, you know, it had a happy ending for me. I've been dating a woman for four years in August Great. that I met on Match.com. <laughs> a plug for Match. But um, but I told her my story, and she didn't run away. Anybody can find you, you know, anybody can find you. And you gotta gotta own it, Mm. simple as that.
1: Sex offender registration and community notification was first written into law in the 90s. The federal government cracked down on sex offenses in response to the spike in news coverage on horrific cases of sexual violence against children, like Jacob Wetterling and Megan Kanka. Here's a news clip about Megan Kanka's murder and rape.
2: For six years ago, 33-year-old Jesse Tementikos was arrested and charged with killing Megan Kanka. He had two previous convictions for child sexual assault, and he had served six years in
0: prison. After his release, he moved into a house directly across the street from the Kankas. Maureen Kanka is Megan's mother.
2: My daughter had crossed the street to go get a girlfriend to come out and play, and Um, Her friend was not home and uh, a neighbor who lived diagonally from my house um, Was outside and he lured her into his home to see a puppy dog to see a puppy dog to see a puppy dog and he raped her sodomized her strangled her Put a plastic garbage bag over her head secured it with a belt and suffocated her stuffed her body in a toy chest and uh, dumped her body in one of our local parks
1: Families like the Wetterlings and Kankas successfully led efforts to implement nationwide sex offender registration and community notification procedures. Now, most sex offenders must be registered on a publicly available list. Those with a history of repeat offense are subject to community notification, meaning that local police departments must notify community members when a sex offender moves into a neighborhood. There's no doubt that sex offender registry and community notification laws are well-intentioned. And like Bill's dating prospects who found out about his record online, others have been able to reference the registry and protect themselves from potentially dangerous people. But overall, research has shown that the effectiveness of sex offender registries and community notification procedures is unclear. Some states, like Minnesota and Washington, have seen modest reductions in rates of sexual violence after establishing a sex offender registry. Other states haven't seen any statistically significant changes, and some have even seen increases in reported sexual violence. Researchers also haven't been able to clearly parse out if registration and community notification requirements reduce recidivism. Some studies have noted modest decreases in recidivism, while others haven't found any statistically significant changes. There are a couple reasons that sex offender registry and community notification haven't had the desired effect on rates of sexual violence. First, most people are abused by family or friends, not strangers on the sex offender registry. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, only 14% of survivors report being assaulted by a stranger. Second, most people who commit sex offenses are first-time offenders, not people with a registered track record. In other words, sex offender registry and community notification laws only target the small number of cases that are a result of a repeat sex offender targeting a stranger. The failures of sex offender laws have largely been overlooked, even now when criminal justice reform has become a hot topic in American politics. Many argue that reform should only apply to people who've committed nonviolent offenses. I asked Bill what he'd say to those who argue that sex offenders should continue to be punished in the way they currently are.
0: You know, I was on a committee to give you the foundation for my answer Mm
1: -hmm.
0: with a guy who has a lot of experience as an activist. And he said way back in the 80s, AIDS was the big thing. And people who were homosexuals, were treated like second-class citizens. They were given no respect, they're they're deviant, they're aberrant, whatever. And the conversation then changed. And then look at how far society's come in the last, it took 30 years, (laughs) but nonetheless, in the last, maybe even over a 25-year period, I'd say, that there was a big change. So I was at a meeting with him one time and he said, before anything ever happens with sex offenders, the conversation has to change, the labels have to change, and society has to understand that. And every time I get faced with a question like you just posed, it reminds me of that. Um, we're a long way from the conversation changing, and it's unfortunate. Um, I hope I live long enough for mm-hmm. it to change, and then it'll be something else. And mm-hmm. I, I don't. I don't know why. But uh, they, they, you're so right that everything excludes sex offenders for the most part. There are some little niche places or niche places that, that look at the big picture, but not many.
1: What Bill's describing here is a trend in the way society responds when a social problem emerges, blaming and demonizing people rather than identifying the best evidence-based solutions. There's no doubt that gay people and sex offenders are two completely different populations, but Bill's point is still worth noting. The American government's policies toward sex offenders were built in an era of mass hysteria. Reports show that many officials did not consult experts or otherwise research the effectiveness of sex offender registries and community notification before signing those measures into law. Now, decades after implementing these policies, advocates of both survivors and sex offenders are recommending the government invest in public health-based solutions to sexual violence. Sex offender treatment has shown some promise, as long as treatment approaches center the humanity and security of program participants. Preliminary evidence shows that sex offender treatment can reduce rates of recidivism by somewhere between 6 and 10 percent. These modest improvements in recidivism rates can be boosted with changes to treatment protocol. For example, if treatment in prison were to be confidential, people would likely be able to benefit more from the experience because they'd be able to speak freely in a truly safe space. Many localities in Canada have implemented what are called circles of accountability. This restorative justice-based approach allows trained volunteers to support sex offenders who are reintegrating back to the community. These community members help former sex offenders find employment in housing and avoid situations that could potentially lead to reoffense. Research shows that circles of accountability have also led to reduced rates of recidivism. Additionally, many advocates believe that prevention needs to start as early as kindergarten state legislatures are now considering laws to implement sexual violence education in K-12 settings. These programs are designed to teach young people about consent, empathy, personal space, and healthy relationships. According to Paul Shannon, a board member for the National Association for Rational Sex Offense Laws, there isn't one silver bullet approach.
2: For those who have a mental illness... You deal with that through the mental health system. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you put restrictions depending on a, it's such an individual thing. Uh, what happens to people should be individualized according to what will work best for them and to protect society. I mean, that would be a huge step in the right direction to individualize treatment, punishment, uh, controls, all that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of these people do need do need help most don't most once they've been arrested will never do it again mm. uh, but some people do need help so you would you would build that in for some people uh, therapy might help sex offender therapy for other people it's completely unnecessary um, and so you would you would take you would start with the idea that this person is salvageable <laughs> And that you want to build on their strengths. Uh, and you would evaluate what would be the best the best way to do that. You certainly don't let people just stay out there who are hurting people. You stop them. You do. You contain them. But then you move on from there. You don't label them as as uh, you know hideous, uh, even though what they did maybe. But I think if we if we focus as in other crimes, on the area of restorative justice, it's a it's a phrase, uh, and and it means you know it means restoring people, both people who have been hurt and people who have not, because a lot of people who have been hurt in turn hurt other people, <laughs> uh, and you want to interrupt that. So, it's a it's it's more the fundamental attitude. Once we have a fundamental attitude, then we can look at the studies, and see what the studies show about what works best, right? But as long as we have a hysteria going on, we can't look at the studies. We can't figure out what works best because we know what works best, keeping them in the elephant graveyards. (laughs) That's where they belong. Throw them there and make sure they stay there, even though you don't know who they are at all.
1: Thank you all for taking the time to listen to this episode of Criminalized. Again, this is a really difficult topic and I appreciate that you've made it this far. If you're interested in supporting efforts in Massachusetts to implement evidence-based policies toward people who commit sex offenses, visit the website for the Sex Offender Policy Reform Initiative. This organization provides up-to-date information about bills in the state legislature that impact those who have committed sex offenses. You can also donate to the Boston Release Network. Which connects people who have committed sex offenses and are returning home with access to social services, including housing, education, and subway cards. For more information about ways to get involved, check out the Criminalized website at criminalized.org.